Good preparation for our hearing of God's word. If you have your Bibles, our reading is from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 18. You can find that on page 603 of your pew Bibles. We are continuing in our series on this prophet and his word to us of warning as well as blessing. So here now, God's word, I'll be reading verses 18 through the end of the chapter and then finishing at verse 7 on chapter 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of his battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up but he did not take take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Do keep your Bibles open uh, at this passage as we pray together. Let's pray. May your word, O Christ, be our truth. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may the Father's greater glory be our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Isaiah is, as we have been discovering, the master of the effective start to a sermon. He likes 
the punchline, and by punch I mean he likes to punch you as he, he begins his sermon. And this particular sermon, which begins in chapter 42, verse 18, begins with a punch. It, it is unnerving uh, as we begin to read it. And the secret, the reason why it's unnerving is in the use of an expression that he, that he uses in verse 19. It's an expression we've been discovering as we've been going through the book of Isaiah. It's this expression, my servant. We know, for example, that Israel was the servant of the Lord. Back in chapter 41, that was one of the great revelations in chapter 41, verse 8. We have the prophet speaking to Israel. That is Israel, the chosen people of God, described as Israel and Jacob. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. That seems to make it pretty clear that the servant is Israel. We could go elsewhere. We could go to chapter 44, verse 2. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Or we could look at chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. So Israel, the people of God, are the servants of God. Israel, corporately, is there to serve God's purposes in the world. Those have been spelt out in the early part of the book of Isaiah. They are to be a kind of magnet for the world as men and women come to Jerusalem, come to the temple seeking after God clutching hold of the garments of God's people and asking them that they might instruct them in the way of salvation. That's the goal. That was the purpose of God, as it were, for the people of God. They were to be his servants, living under his word, obeying his law, following his instructions, proclaiming his message. They were the servants of God. Then we came to chapter 20, uh, came to chapter uh, 42. And in chapter 42, we are introduced to another figure, this time a, an individual. And he is called a servant or the servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is a remarkable individual. He's obviously part of Israel. He's identified with Israel. The very title, servant, identifies him with the people of God. So he emerges from the people of God, but he stands out. The things that are said about this individual have not been said about anyone else. We took time to unpack that. He's the one that God, if God had a soul, that's an anthropomorphism, it's a human way of describing God, but if God had a soul, his soul would delight in him. Everything God is delights in this chosen servant. We know enough about Israel to know that not everything Israel did or, or was delights God, but everything about this servant delights God. And this servant has come into the world to bring forth justice to the nations. That is righteousness. And in the way it's used in Isaiah, this refers to the kingdom of God. He's come to establish the kingdom of God. He's come to establish the rule of God over the lives of God's people. 
He's come to declare the Word of God, to enforce the law of God. He's come to do what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, when there he proclaims the kingdom of God over the lives of his people, the rule of God, the reign of God, over the lives of men and women who have come to, under his authority. That was what the servant would do. And as such, the servant has God's commendation, God's delight. And from our perspective, looking back as we do through our, the New Testament revelation, we know precisely who that servant is. We know that that servant is, in fact, the Lord Jesus. The father quotes from this very passage when he says to his son, as he's being baptized, you are my son, that came from Psalm 2, with whom I am well pleased, with whom I am delighted, comes from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. But the people to whom Isaiah is writing, of course, don't know that bit of information. They don't know that, that the Messiah, the one described here, the one who's going to bring the kingdom of God to earth and enforce the rule of God over the hearts and minds of men and women, they don't know what we know, that the Lord Jesus has arrived. So Isaiah knows, you see, as he's writing to us, as he's preaching to these people, that what he has said so far has raised a question that needs to be answered. And the question is this. Is this ideal servant in, verse, in chapter 42, is this ideal servant in a direct line of continuity with Israel, the servant of God whom God has chosen? Is, for example, this individualized, personalized description at the beginning of chapter 42 really intended to describe what the people of God as a whole, corporately, will do? How they will corporately behave? Well, if we came away with that idea here in this sermon, beginning in chapter 42, verse 18, he smashes away any idea that the servant described in chapter 42 is in any way the church that he knew. And so we begin this chapter, this sermon in, in verse 18, with him issuing, with the Lord issuing a, a stern rebuke to his own people. Here is Israel, the servant of the Lord, but do you see he is referring to his servant again? Verse 19. Hear you deaf, look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is he speaking about? Well, he's speaking about Israel, isn't he? He's speaking about the church that Isaiah served. He's speaking about the people of God of Isaiah's day. He's referring to them. And he's saying, all those things I wrote about you back there in chapter 41, about you being God's servant, having been chosen by God, being the offspring of David, having been called from the ends of the earth, and to whom God says, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. I am with you, be not dismayed, I am your God. All of that is true of you. You are God's church, you are God's covenant people. Those promises of God to you are real. But here is the blinding reality. The reality is that spiritually, 
you are characterized by the fact that you are deaf, blind, and as we shall see later on, perhaps another sermon, so you come back, also dumb. Deaf because you're not hearing, blind because you're not seeing, and dumb because you are not speaking, testifying to the reality of the God with whom you have to do. So you look at what he says about the church of his day being deaf. Oh, deaf ones, hear. Who is as deaf as my messenger? You see the contradiction. Here is a church that has been given a message, but they've not heard the message. So therefore, they have nothing to say. My messenger whom I send. They open their ears. They come to listen, but they don't hear. They don't get the message. They are deaf. And because they are deaf, they are blind. Uh, Oh, blind ones, look so as to see who is blind but my servant. And then in verse 19, who is blind but my reconciled one. The word that's used there is, is a hard one to translate. You'll notice in the footnote in the ESV it says, as the one at peace with me. And that, that I think should be the predominant translation, my reconciled one. One of my reasons for saying that is that when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about reconciliation in Second Corinthians chapter 5, he comes to this passage and to this great sermon that begins here in verse 18, and he quotes from it and refers to it and alludes to it. And I think the clue is because he is describing the people of God as those who have been reconciled to God. Peace has been made between them and God. They know that they have a relationship with God. He is speaking to the church. And he's saying, here are these people who are reconciled to me. They enjoy this great privilege. And yet... They are blind to what I'm doing in the world. They don't perceive and understand and see what I'm doing in their lives and in the world. Just as we reconcile men and women, very often as Christian people, we, we are not responding. We're, not, we're living beneath the privilege that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And we understand, we understand only too well what is being said here. And there in verse 21, we find the reason for the seriousness of this stern rebuke. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake that they should magnify the teaching and make it majestic. That's Alec Matir's translation and I think is even clearer than the extremely sound version that you have in your hand this morning. Magnify the teaching and make it majestic. What was it that God had given to these people? He had given to these people his word. He had placed that word in their hands. He had provided that that word should be preached in their ears. They had received this word from God and it was a powerful and a strong word and they needed to hear it. And throughout the chapter, throughout this chapter 41 and 42, this section, the idea of hearing, being deaf spiritually, is not listening, not understanding, not grasping, not having the spiritual insight 
to hear what is being said by the Lord to the Lord's people. Echoes of Revelation, the book of Revelation, when the Lord Jesus is addressing his churches and he says to his churches, He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And there's a sense in which whenever the Word of God is preached, there are always people who will hear with the ear, but they will not hear what is being said. They don't get it. They don't, they don't, they're not switched on to what is being said. There, there is a, a blinder, a blocker in their ears. They cannot hear what God is saying, particularly to their own heart and mind. A friend of mine, Eric Alexander, used to preach at 10th year. He used to say, do you know that there are some people you will not let God speak to you through? And there are some things you will not let God speak to you about. And if you have an argument with God in your heart, if there's some issue in your own personal life, some issue in your private life, and you're struggling with God about that issue, you're wrestling with it. You hate it whenever it's mentioned. You hate reading it whenever you're reading the Bible, whenever you come across any mention of that secret sin, perhaps, or some issue of understanding a doctrine that you don't really want to accept. You come across it and your eyes glide past that verse, so they glide past that word, because you really don't want to hear what God is saying to you on that subject. You ever been like that? Ever felt like that about any issue in your life? These people to whom Isaiah is writing, they were deaf to the word of God. Therefore, they were blind. They, they did not see God at work. So when things went wrong in their life, when, when issues, when circumstances went against them, what is their response? Well, we've been seeing that as we've gone through unpacking these verses from Isaiah 40. What do they do? Well, they complain. When things are going wrong in their life, instead of seeing the hand of God and understanding the mind of God and having been informed by the doctrines of who God is and so on, what happens? Well, where is God? If God loved me, God would be doing something about this. Why doesn't God answer my prayer, which means give me what I asked him to give me? Why is God not making himself known? God doesn't bother about me. He doesn't care about me. My way is disregarded by my God. You see? These people are full of complaints, full of complaints to God. And it's because having not heard, they do not see the hand of God in their lives and in the life of the church and in the world in which they live. Therefore, they are dumb because they have nothing to say. They're God's messengers. But what good is a messenger if the messenger hasn't heard the message, doesn't hear the word that he must pass on, that she must share with those with whom she comes in contact. That's what God is addressing here. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. God had always intended that among his people, there would be a, a thirst for righteousness created by the ministry of the Word of God in the hearts and minds of God's people. That they would love His law, love His law, love His rules, love His instruction. 
so that by being their minds being informed and formed by his truth they would be prepared for all the circumstances of their lives whatever might come upon them so here we have these people and they've gotten so far away from the truth of God and you see this juxtaposition you see the Lord's ideal servant and he just loves the law of God and he just desires and delights in pleasing God and he pursues the will of God and he understands the intentions of God and he goes about the business of God we saw all of that at the beginning of chapter 42 and here are these other servants you know when the uh, first servant was introduced there at the beginning of chapter 42 when Isaiah finished talking about him he launches into a song of praise from verse 10 through to verse 17 he can't help but praise when people are occupied with Christ they cannot help but praise him when people are occupied with what Jesus can do and will do on behalf of his people they cannot help but burst into song and Isaiah leads the way for us just as the Apostle Paul so often does when he when he gives you some great doctrinal truth and then he can't help himself and he just goes off down a rabbit hole of praise so Isaiah goes down the rabbit hole of praise as he exalts God and sings a new song because God's going to do a new thing through this ideal servant this individual who will come the Messiah when he comes and you see in the juxtaposition of these two things we're having the first clue which will be filled in and shored up as we go further into this book that the reason why this other servant is coming is to do what the other servants aren't doing and cannot do by themselves this other servant that is the Messiah is coming in, in order that he might keep the law and love the law obey the law satisfy the law keep God's Word in his heart let it settle down deep within his heart and instruct others in the law of God and in the Word of God so that they might find their way to him he does that because we don't and he's acting as our representative he's acting as our substitute Isaiah will teach that more fully in a few chapters later on but there you have the juxtaposition between the great servant Jesus and his servants in the church then and now his servants in the church then and now and Isaiah like a good preacher and pastor is saying to these people you know I spoke about comfort back in chapter 40 I spoke about the comfort of God you will never know the experience of the fullness of the comfort of God and you will never fulfill your mission to be his obedient servants why well he says with verse 24 because of sin in fact what he does there is he describes the discipline of God in the life of these people Israel then was going to be looted and plundered 
and its people would be taken into captivity in Babylon. And Isaiah is addressing the people. He's told them that's what's going to happen. They know that's coming down the pike. They know that's the future for them. He's, he's been underlining that. He's now speaking more broadly to the people beyond his time. And he's saying, when that happens, you'll be asking questions. Why did God allow this to happen? Why has God allowed his church to be under pressure? Why has God allowed the culture at large to be turning against the church of Jesus Christ? Has God abdicated his responsibility towards his church? And Isaiah says to the people, Who gave Jacob to the looter? And Israel to the plunderers. Think about that for a moment. How did you get into this mess? Why was it that God disciplines his church? Why is it that God is disciplining his church in the Western world? Today, why does God ever discipline his church? We know that judgment begins in the house of God. The Bible tells us that. Well, here is the answer, verse 24. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? Here's Isaiah. Isaiah knows what it is to be forgiven his sins. Isaiah never forgot. He never forgot that revelation he had of God's glory. Do you remember that we read about in chapter 6 where he sees the Lord high and exalted? The holiness of God, the thrice holiness of God. And having seen God in his blistering holiness, never again would he ever say to people, you need to pray about your sins. We need to pray about the PCUSA's sins. Or the Church of Scotland's sins. Or the celebrity pastor's sins. Isaiah would say, would say to you, if you think that's what it's all about, let me just say you've never, ever seen your sin before a thrice holy God. And so he prays, as Daniel would pray and others have prayed, we against whom we have sinned. When we come to pray this week in our church prayer dinner and we're praying for the world we'll be praying in those terms we come as fellow sinners yes we know the Lord Jesus but we are fellow sinners and our sin contributes to that whole power of sin that grips society at large and when we pray for other people we're praying for ourselves for mercy on the church of Jesus Christ it reminds us that when everything hits the fan when the church is in the doldrums, when it's overrun by the enemy, when its people are defeated and enslaved, that this all happens by the hand of God. By the hand of God. It's a stern rebuke. And it's accompanied by the discipline and chastisement of God. But it's followed by a strong reassurance a strong reassurance. That's where chapter 43 kicks in so powerfully. Here in this chapter, he begins to affirm again that God has not revoked his calling for Israel to be the Lord's servant. That the fact that there is another and a greater servant does not mean 
that the church's servant role has been abrogated. In fact, its calling is stated in the strongest terms imaginable. But now, he says, linking 43 and 42, Israel's God, Israel's God who is the creator and the former of the world. This is language he's used earlier. Only then he's used the language of creation, the physical universe. He said that God is the creator and former of the universe. We saw that in chapter 40. But he is also the creator and former of the church. He makes the church. He shapes the church. He makes the church his own new creation that he is about to bring into being. The church belongs to God in that particular way. And he reminds us of this. He reminds us of who the church is. The church which is described as Jacob and Israel. Jacob is a reminder that the church has a a rather unsavory past. Jacob was a He was not a very nice man. He he was a conniving, cunning individual. But God came into his life and God dealt with him and renamed him a prince with God. And there's a sense of which God has done that for everyone in the church of Jesus Christ. Even if you were brought up in a Christian family. Even if you were, as I was, an ideal child. My grandmother regularly told me I was an ideal boy. She never met such a nice boy. You're wondering where the nice boy went. Uh, Maybe you weren't nice, actually. You probably weren't very nice. And maybe in your teenage years you sowed your wild oats while I was conserving mine or whatever. Seriously, all of us, whether we came from a nice sheltered background or we came from a really bad background, whether we really were bad in our past, all of us fall into this category. We were born in Jacob, and by the grace of God, by coming to know Jesus Christ for ourselves, being baptized into his church, we are part of the Israel of God. And that's the people God is working with, the people God is dealing with. And he delights to deal with them. And do you see what he says to them? I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. This is an amazing word of God. It's a general word. The commentators are are all agreed on that, and I think they're right. That here he's not thinking about anything in particular, but a general comment that whoever you are, whenever you're reading this, wherever you are in the world reading this, this applies to you. It applies to those things in your life, in the life, in the days in which he is writing. This expression captures the the extremes of danger in the mind of someone living in the Middle East at that time. Floods and fire. The extremes of danger. You think and imagine the extremes of danger and difficulty you might come across in your life. Whatever they are, whatever the predicaments of life are, do you see the promise that is being made to you here? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They had had an example of that, didn't they, in their past? 
when they walked into the Red Sea, God had demonstrated there by his mighty hand that he was with them. He brought them through the waters to the other side. And there would be in the future an illustration of the second thing, through the fire. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because I've called you by name and you're mine. The story in Daniel, the book of Daniel, about Daniel's three friends. You, you remember learning about them in Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. Uh, I mean, Abednego. I'm glad you laughed. They didn't laugh at the first service. They just, but they're always half asleep then. Really, you need to explain a lot of the first sermon to them because they, were, they weren't getting anything. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember what happened to them. They, because of their obedience to God, are thrown into the fiery furnace. And as they're peering, the king is peering in. He sees these three men. He sees that they're not consumed, that even their clothes are not consumed. There's not even one little tinge of burning on the clothes that they're wearing. And he sees the fourth figure, one like a son of man, a human figure present with them, there in the furnace, in the fire. And God gives that example in their lives and they experience to back up his promise to Israel. When you're going through the fire, I will be with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever is, is afflicting your life at this very moment, whatever crisis in your relationship you may be going through, whatever the problems are in your place of work at this moment, whatever your health scare is, he will be with you. One of our dear families has been through a terrible time this last week with a little girl in hospital. And that little girl's mother was just telling me how they felt that they were, they had the presence of God with them. They were being supported, the prayers of God's people, the presence of God with them through that crisis. And that's the reality. You take this promise for yourself this morning, will you? Will you take this if you're a child of God? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And look at the, end, look at the explanation of verse 3. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's, he's piling on reasons for you to be confident that he will be with you. Whatever comes your way. Do you see that? He is the covenant Lord. The Lord of steadfast love. He is your God. He is for you. He is the Holy One of Israel. The one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up. His robe filling the temple with the seraphim singing, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. And he is your Savior. There are two words that you need to get into your head this morning. That it is this God who is with you. That's why you see the church is never going to fail. That's why in spite of the fact that oftentimes his people are deaf and blind and dumb spiritually. The church will not ultimately fail because this God is with you. Jesus says, I will build my church 
You think about the church. You, you read church history. You look at us. You look at the state of us. You look at us, the state of us, and the church generally in America. But get this. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says about his people, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or peril, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But notice this. This Lord God, your God, this Holy One of Israel, is your Savior. He is your Savior. And what does that mean? Well, look how he spells it out. He's already indicated this. Back in verse 1, he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Then he's left that hanging there for a moment. But now he's introduced this word, your Savior. Here's how he's going to save you. Here's how he's going to bring salvation to his people. reason for that must have been that I preached so long at the first service. You need to worry right about now. But you notice what he's saying here. He, he has redeemed them. He is their savior. Here he spells out what he's going to do. I want you to notice this this morning. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Egypt, one of the great powers of the region, lavish, splendid, wealthy Egypt, powerful Egypt. God says, think of the greatest power around here you can think of right now, Egypt. I would give all that for you. I would throw in these other countries that are rich in mineral and other resources, Cush, and Seba in exchange for you. I am prepared to do a big thing in order that I might secure your salvation. I am prepared to give everything for you. I'm not going to spare anything, any expense, in securing your salvation, God says to these people. In securing your reconciliation. You see how he goes on to say this, I give men, verse 4, in return for you. Peoples, that's a plural of many, 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 many nations. I will give peoples in exchange for your life. God is saying to these people, he's underlining to these people, I am going to do everything I have to do in order to secure your redemption. I will pay every last penny of the ransom to secure your release, your rescue, and your restoration to me. Isn't that amazing? And what is even more amazing, of course, is that in the fulfillment of this, and remember I said the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this when he's writing 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but in fulfillment of this, 
God is going to give his own son. He's going to ransom us, buy us back, buy our release. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that remarkable? In the end, God gave his son. You see, Paul is reflecting on something of this when he writes in Romans 8 and verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You remember the story of Abraham? God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And with each of those phrases, God is underlining and underlining, underscoring, or whatever we say in this country, underscoring, underscoring the cost that he was placing on Abraham. He'd always wanted a son with his dear wife, Sarah. It had been denied to them for so long. And then there was that great day when Sarah said, I'm expecting. And later when she gave birth, we have a son, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And you remember Abraham takes Isaac and he takes him to the place of sacrifice. And as he's about to offer up his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, God intervenes and there is a lamb in the thicket. And as Paul writes these words in Romans 8, he has that in the back of his mind and he's saying this, God spared Abraham's son. But he did not spare his only son, his only son. I will give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. I will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Why am I going to do this? Why do I give this massive amount, this one who was by very nature God. This one who did not need to think that equality with God was something he needed to reach for or grasp. This one who would make himself a servant, emptying himself by taking on himself the role of a servant and taking the path of obedience to death, even the death of the cross. Why? Look at the answer. Verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. My dear brothers and sisters, will you hear those words? Why has God done such a great thing for us at Calvary? It is because you are precious. You are honored and you are greatly loved. I love you. 
Maybe you need to hear God speaking, whispering that word to you this morning. You're precious. You're honored. And I love you. Well, that's a very strong encouragement, isn't it? To the child of God to go forward. And we only have a second, about five minutes ago, just to look at the last little bit here, which is God's steadfast resolve. Do not be afraid, he says. Fear not, for I am with you, and I am going to fulfill my purpose to bring your offspring from the east and the west, from the north and from the south. I am going to bring sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And as Isaiah delivers the message, do you see how suddenly Israel's getting bigger and bigger? Israel's borders are getting broader and broader. What makes up Israel is now becoming international. Those ten tribes which are lost by, Isaiah's, by this time in Isaiah's life, gone forever, gone for good, mixed up among the nations so you cannot work out who they are any longer. They're going to be recalled. And from the Gentiles, people like you and I, from, from the north and the south and the east and the west, gathered together. That's what God is in the business of doing. Gathering together a people, assembling his people. And do you notice what he says about these people? They are his sons and the, his daughters. It's not used very often in the Bible, but here it's used to underline that God is the father of these people. Jesus had this biblical basis for teaching us to pray to our Father in heaven. It's our Father in heaven who is assembling these people together, gathering them together from the ends of the earth. That's what the church's business is. And every one of them individually, verse 7, every one of them as individuals who is called by his name has been created for his glory and formed and made who they are by his hands. Brother and sister, that is you this morning, called by his name. You have been, from the foundation of the world, you have been created for his glory, formed and made for his glory. And the business that God is about today is the business of the ingathering of the people of God, people like you and me, from every point of the compass into his eternal kingdom. Now, do you know this God? Could it be that as you've listened to this this morning, words have suddenly become ideas and ideas have been becoming truth and truth has been becoming attractive and Jesus has been becoming more real then you have no hoops to jump through in fact you have nothing to do at all except receive him, trust him, and enjoy 
his salvation. Let's pray together. God, you are the Father of our Lord Jesus. You are our Father by gracious adoption. And your Holy Spirit is your great gift to give us faith and to help us persevere. This morning we pray that you would give to us the gift of faith and enable us to persevere to your praise and glory for Jesus' sake.